Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference where we help you live your faith in the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me in studio, as always, is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Zapiniak. Hey, Kit. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in once again this week. We are so glad that you are able to join us right here on your favorite Catholic radio station. Remember, if you ever miss us on the radio, you can always find us online. Just go to mncatholic.org forward slash podcast, or you can find us on your favorite podcast app. Just search for the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and then make sure to hit subscribe so you never miss any future conversations. In today's episode, we're talking about the rise of psychological man. What does it mean that people more and more understand reality in the context of their subjective sense of their self and the way they perceive things? What impact does it have on society? And how can Christians bring a more stable understanding of the person to our politics and our culture? In our mailbag segment, we answer a question about a political controversy and the role of clergy in addressing it. And of course, we want to leave you with some practical tips on how you can put your faith into action. In our Bricklayer segment, we offer tips for connecting with your lawmakers this summer at parish festivals away from the Capitol. And listeners, if you ever have an idea for the Bricklayer segment, ways that people could start living out their faith in action, or maybe you have a question for us about faith and politics, send those ideas and questions my way. Just shoot me an email. The email address is show at mncatholic.org. Or you can find us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just search for the Minnesota Catholic Conference. We're now blessed to be joined on the line by Dr. Carl Truman. He is an author and professor of biblical and religious studies at Grove City College, a member of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. He's an esteemed church historian and previously served as the William E. Simon Fellow in Religion and Public Life at Princeton University. He's authored and edited more than a dozen books, including The Creedal Imperative, Luther on the Christian Life, and Histories and Fallacies. His work came to our attention because of a series of articles he did in the online journal, The Public Discourse, called Psychological Man. And we're speaking with him today about his newest book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Dr. Truman, welcome to the Bridge Builder Program. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. A, a delight, truly. Why did you choose to write The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self? It's, it's a little bit out of your wheelhouse as a church historian, it seems. It is. Uh, I'd, personally, I'd reached a point in my career where I was just getting a bit bored about writing on the Reformation. Uh, practically, I was serving as a pastor in a church at the time, as well as being a professor at a seminary, and I wanted to, to address the issue of the sexual revolution and how it had changed the way many people, including many Christians, think. And I wanted to set that in a broader historical context. So the book really arose out of sort of academic boredom with the Reformation, academic curiosity with the question of the sexual revolution, and a desire to to do something that might be a practical help to to Christians as they try to navigate uh, the changes uh, in modern society on these issues. Christians, I think, are accused in the culture of, of almost obsessing about the effects of the sexual revolution, but the effects are indeed profound and have had significant consequences. What did you choose to add to the literature that you thought necessitated yet another commentary on what's going on in our culture today related to the sexual revolution? It's a good question. Uh, what I really wanted to do was to set the, the sexual revolution in a much broader historical context to uh, allow Christians and other interested readers to understand that the sexual revolution is really a function of a much wider and broader revolution in, in the notion of the self, to put that in sort of plain English, in, in the way we understand ourselves to be and to operate in the world around. I think many Christians are very 
perturbed and perhaps transfixed or mesmerized by the, the drama of the changes and the speed of the changes relative to sexual morality that are taking place in the world around us. I wanted to help them understand that although these things are happening very quickly, the reasons for them happening quickly are actually very deep and very long-standing within the culture in which we find ourselves, which is both depressing, but hopefully also would help us not to panic in terms of what we're seeing. So what are the origins of that cultural revolution? What are the, the ideas or principles or moments in history that have led us to where we are, according to your new book? Yeah, it's, it's a long and somewhat complicated story, but one could sort of simplify it and say that the, the modern understanding of the self really goes through three phases. First of all, we have what I call the psychologizing of the self that we find with thinker like Jean-Jacques Rousseau in the 18th century, the romantic poets and artists of the early 19th century who really uh, see the, the real me and the real you as that which goes on inside. It's our feelings, it's our sentiments, it's our emotions. It's, it's what we feel we are inside that really constitutes who we are. In the second stage, we, we might look at a, a figure like Sigmund Freud and say, well, Freud agrees with, with that internalizing of the self, that we, we are who we are inside. But Freud makes it sexual. Freud says, yeah, you, you are your inner feelings. And the thing, the key to understanding your inner feelings is to realize that they are fundamentally sexual in origin. So we have the, the self is psychologist, and then we might say the, the psychologist is, is sexualized. And then as we move through the 20th century, uh, we find that that spills over into the realm of politics. And, and it makes sense, because if you think that, that we are fundamentally sexual beings, then then rules, laws, practices, etc., about what you are able to do sexually are really rules and laws about who society allows you to be. And so the final stage of the, of the, of the process, if you like, is when we come to think of sex and our sexual desires as being political in their significance and orientation. Say more about that, the idea that um, sexual desires are fundamentally political in orientation. I think that strikes a lot of people as intuitively strange, but develop that a little bit more for us, please. Yeah, and again, we could go to the figure of Freud as a way of helping us understand this. And One of the things that Freud does that is very, very significant and really flies, I would say, in the face of how things were understood before is that Freud, when he, when he argues that that inner space those inner feelings are fundamentally sexual feelings. What he's really saying is that, that your sexual desires are your identity. Throughout history, there have been all kinds of sexual practices. Homosexuality was rife in Greece. But, but nobody in ancient Greece identified themselves as gay. For them, sex was something you did. In the Bible, you know, I'd say sex is something you do. It's an act in the Bible. Some of those acts are legitimate, and some of those acts are illegitimate. But sex is, is always an act. With Freud, what you have is sex becomes who you are. Once your sexual identity is, is sexual desires become fundamental to your identity, then sex becomes who you are. That's why now we, we use language like gay and straight. I mean, you can identify as a gay person never having had a sexual experience. You're simply referring to the nature, the orientation of your, your sexual desires, and, and they give you your identity. And then you think, well, once sex is identity, then sexual practices really become expressions of who you are. And the government saying that certain sexual practices are wrong is really the government saying 
certain identities are wrong. And that's why sex has become so politicized now, because sexual morality, for most Christians, we think of it in terms of things we do, in, in terms of practices, legitimate and illegitimate practices. But in a post-Freudian register of the modern world, uh, sex is, is who you are, and that inevitably has significant public and political implications. So in a political culture that prizes rights and liberties and equality above all things, then it's only natural that sexual questions would become in, uh, political questions and uh, dominate sort of the discourse today. Absolutely. Um, you know, if, what, what uh, let's say, a ban on, on homosexuality would effectively be saying, if you have homosexual desires, society is not going to allow you to be yourself. Society is not going to recognize who you are. You're going to be invisible to society. That's how it sort of works, uh, how it's working its way out. And hence we have the, the, the LGBTQ and on and on concerns become the primary civil rights concerns uh, of our political discourse. Yes. The, the, the group, of course, is interesting because the L, the G, and the B don't naturally tie together with the T because the L, the G, and the P assume that there is a biological distinction between male and female, and that's very important, whereas the T denies that. But what you really have there is a coalition of, of various, one might, case, one might say at one time, fringe identities bound together by the fact that they have been marginalized by previous societies. If you are bound together by a shared sense of victimhood. That's an interesting point, and, it, and one looks, if you, we follow these debates closely, same-sex marriage, that's almost quaint. L, the L and the G uh, uh, identities have given way to the B and the T uh, and the Q in the discourse and in these the conversations. Is it really the case, then, that it's less about particular sexual identities instead of broader cultural revolution that seeks to break down all kinds of sexual norms and that each step is one just step along the way toward you know, the ultimate transgression of identity? Yes, I think the, the ultimate end term of this is, is the queer, if you like. It's, it's the demolition of, of any imposed bounds or norms on these things. Now, hopefully, there will always be some kind of restraint. Even now, there are sexual proclivities, certain sexual desires that society does not consider to be intimate allow you to, to claim as an identity. But on the whole, I think the overall agenda has been uh, a, a sexually anarchic one, if I could put it that way. It's not been about expanding the, the range of acceptable sexual practices. It's been about demolishing the normativity of, of heterosexual identity. So we're seeing that certainly in the, in the political realm and the court cases that come up before the Supreme Court and the legislative issues that come up in state uh, legislatures and in Congress. But, you know, at a cultural level, I think some people are inclined to, towards apathy on these questions. Why do, why do we care? These are people's closely held identities. Why get in the way of them choosing their own identity? What's the value here? Why, why should we care about these things? Yeah, and that's an interesting question. I always, I'm always reminded uh, of, of Thomas Jefferson's statement about you know, religious freedom. You know, what does it matter to me if my neighbor believes in one God or 20 gods or no gods at all? Uh, it neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg. And I think some response, even some response among Christians has been, you know, gay marriage neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg. Why, why, do, why should I have an interest in this? Well, I, I would say there are a number of reasons. One, all societies have an interest in the definition of 
Yeah, there's only a difference, and there's different in different societies at a point in time. But every society that has ever been remotely stable has always had some stable concept of the family. And I think what we're seeing with the LGBTQ tribe society is America and the West really has no stable concept of the family anymore. Family is whatever anyone cares to say it is. So there's that, I think, general uh, issue of the, the role of family and of a stable concept of family for the health of society. The second thing, I think, is particularly with the T. Uh, this is having significance for public spaces. There is a sense in which, hey, if I'm living next door to a gay couple, they're good neighbors, uh, what do I care what they get up to in their bedroom? That might be one response. It's a private thing. The T, of course, is changing the public square. It's changing everything, bathroom policy, women's sports, etc., etc. The T is intruding into the lives and will intrude into the lives of everybody. So everybody's got an interest. And you might say, well, I have no interest in the tea question. Well, yeah, but if you have a daughter at school, you might have an interest in her having privacy in her bathrooms. You might have an interest in her not having to compete on the wrestling mat or on the, uh, on the athletics track against somebody who's biologically male. You may well have an interest in that. So I think the tea is going to make the... The what has it got anything to do with me? Why can't people just live lives as they wish? I think the T is going to make that a harder and harder option for us all in the coming future. Let's try to take a constructive turn in terms of a, developing a Christian response. What What is the antidote to this cultural revolution that seems to be steamrolling ahead toward anthropological anarchy? Yeah, it's a very hard question to answer, and I, I think uh, at a national level, uh, at the moment, it's not clear what we, what if anything, we can do. Um, certainly, vote wisely and use your constitutional rights wisely. I think, but specifically as the church, I think what Christians need to do is, first of all, it sounds very bland to say, but I think first of all, Christians need to do what Christians always do. Uh, we need to be the church. We need to educate our children well. We need to make sure that our children are well schooled in the faith. Uh, we need to be a community that loves and supports each other in order to, to be a witness to the world that, that Christianity does represent a much better way for human beings to relate to each other and, and to flourish. So I would, I would press on the church being the church kind of uh, idea there. We're speaking with Dr. Carl Truman. He's a professor at Grove City College and the author of a very fine new book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, talking about the anthropological revolution shaping our politics and our culture. Dr. Truman, from the Catholic standpoint, we have Pope John Paul II and his Theology of the Body, which is really a meditation on Genesis and the sexual binary that it gives us, male and female, he created them. Pope Francis in his recent encyclical Laudato Si, talking about care of creation and stewardship of creation, not just the soil, but also our bodies as well. In, in what sense is a, a Christian recovery of our embodied self and somewhat of an antidote to this problem, too? I think it's absolutely central. I mean, I'm speaking to you as a Protestant, of course, but I have benefited greatly from, particularly from the work of John Paul II on the theology of the body, and at a more popular level, the work of, of a man like uh, Christopher West, 
uh, his recent book, uh, Our Bodies Tell God's Story, I think is an excellent book for presenting John Paul II's, the- well, I would say the Bible's theology of the body to young people. So I would say a theology of the body is, is very important. And uh, I've been spending the last year and a half encouraging Protestants to read John Paul II on this and to, to appropriate him. And also, I would say the work of Carter Sneed, the bioethicist at the University of Notre Dame, his new book, um, What It Means to Be human is a wonderful demonstration of how important the notion of embodiment is for medical ethics so yeah the idea that we are we are embodied creatures bodies are us that we, we don't inhabit our bodies that somebody might inhabit a house or a space i think that's critical and critical at a pastoral level because when you're counseling somebody who's struggling with gender dysphoria uh, the, the starting point has to be you were not born in the wrong body. Wherever else we go with this, you were not born in the wrong body, and that has to be our foundational starting point. So theology of the body, absolutely, absolutely critical, I think, in our, our addressing of the sexual revolution. Well, that, this program is called The Bridge Builder, and, and your uh, testimony and perspective is a great way in which Catholics and Protestants are working together and sharing perspectives to confront these deep challenges of our time. One of the famous sayings of St. Thomas Aquinas is the thing is received in the mode of the receiver, and we can lament the rise of psychological man and want to help people understand the objective datum of creation, whether it's our bodies or objective truth. But the reality is we're people in our culture, they're, they're formed by the ambient culture. They are psychological man. And so from the just from the perspective of evangelization and educating people, Thinking of things in terms of the subjective, what, how do we better do that? How we can't just take a materialistic, positivistic view of the body and say, well, you know, this is the body, this is what it is, you know, embrace that as objective reality. We do see things from that subjective point of view. What are, what's the deep philosophical or theological work we need to be doing, or maybe psychological work on that front? Again, a very good question, to which there's no easy or simple answer. I would say, first of all, I would, I would I, I, as you were asking the question, I was reminded of Jesus' saying, you know, this kind come out only with prayer and fasting. I do think that we need to remember there's a supernatural dimension to the apologetic struggle in society at the moment. Amen. And clearly, prayer uh, and, and calling on the Lord to be gracious has got to be a vital part of our response. I do think there are ways that we can, we can speak to people in the wider culture, though. I think a, a recovery... Uh, a somewhat of natural law is helpful. I, I do think that when you when you show young people, for example, the statistics on on the damage that active homosexual males typically do to their body, so when you show them the statistics on on health, when you show them the statistics on certain forms of cancer that develop as a result of male homosexual activity. That's an eye-opener for people. And they realize that actually, you know, our conceptions of happiness and flourishing as purely psychological, don't work. The body has to be healthy, and the body has to flourish as well. So I would say that there are ways of pointing to to things that, that the, you know, the unbelieving world accepts as, as important that would at least give people pause for thought and perhaps open up a possibility for further conversation. You are a professor at a very well-regarded Christian college, but the students, like at any other place, uh, come formed and to some degree by that ambient culture. What what have you found has been successful at Grove City or in your classroom for nurturing young people in a biblical worldview? 
Yeah, that's a very, again, a very, you asked very good questions, none of which have, have sort of straightforward, easy answers. But I would say the thing that I found resonate, and I teach a course that sort of culminates in a discussion of the sexual revolution. The thing I found that resonates with, with young people is, you know, I, I don't pitch the course as, okay, we're going to talk about sin and righteousness. What, the way I pitch the course is we're going to talk about freedom and belonging. We all want to be free. We all intuitively experience the world as, as free agents. But freedom isn't enough. We need to belong. We need to belong to communities. And what I do then is I present the sexual revolution as an attempt to answer that question, as an attempt to tie together personal freedom and also belonging and, and show that ultimately it, it doesn't lead to a strong sense of freedom or belonging. It sort of falls apart at that point. And at that point, I'm able to speak about the church and I'm able to speak about the Christian faith as Christian faith beautifully ties together the freedom of the individual. If the sun sets you free, you'll be free indeed with belonging. The New Testament, you've got to be united to Christ. You have to be part of the church. There are no lone ranger Christians in the New Testament. So I found that the looking at, at the sexual revolution from the perspective of it's trying to answer a legitimate question. How can I be free and how can I belong at the same time? But ultimately comes up short. I found that that has been an effective way of talking to, to students and getting them to think about, for example, homosexuality, where many of them have gay friends. They don't want you just trashing gay people. That's not what they want. They want you to present them with something better. And I think that's the way to present the Christian faith. Outstanding. What a way to finish this fascinating conversation. We've been blessed to be speaking with Dr. Carl Truman of Grove City College, one of our very fine Christian intellectuals in the culture today. He is the author of The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, also a shorter series of articles based on that book called Psychological Man, which you can find in the public discourse. Dr. Truman, where else can people go to find more of your writings and work? I have a column every two weeks on the website, First Things. Uh, which a lot of your listeners will probably be be aware of. Absolutely. And also, there's a short version of my book for use use by pastors, youth leaders, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, coming out early next year. So uh, many of your listeners might find that, in fact, more helpful than the longer book, hopefully. Wonderful. Dr. Carl Truman, thanks so much for your work and your words today. God bless you and your ministry with young people. Thanks so much for being on The Bridge Builder. Thanks for having me on. And we'll be back in a moment with our mailbag segment. Welcome back to The Bridge Builder, where we help you connect your faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and now it's time to jump into the mailbag to hear what comments and questions you've been sending our way. Kit, what's in this week's mailbag? This week we have a question about controversy, You know, whether it's near election time or even just when highly debated subjects that really matter deeply to Catholics come up in the course of conversation— we get a lot of questions from the public about the role of priests in these controversial topics. So today's question is, what should Catholics make of controversial priests, and how should priests engage with politics? Well, that's a thorny question for sure, and it's ever the more challenging because there's a need in our culture and our society today for leaders and truth-tellers to speak up and take a stand on important questions and be leaders in our society. We need leaders, and there's a lot of fear and pusillanimity, small-mindedness all around us. And so when we see uh, people and callers and clergy standing up for what's right, 
uh, we want to join them. But the question is, is what is the role of the priest in those discussions? Can a priest should and should a priest speak about important questions uh, at the intersection of the culture and the gospel and morality? Absolutely. Uh, the gospel is not simply just an announcement of the kingdom, although it is principally that. It's also a way of being. It's called in the New Testament the way. And certainly there are modes of being and modes of acting in our culture that are consistent with that and not consistent with that gospel, and that includes uh, public policy. But one point of caution is to have a skeptical eye toward uh, priests who cultivate a cult of personality, who make a political cause, especially or a social cause, at the center of their priesthood. The, the center of the priesthood is offering the sacraments to the people, being close to the people, and announcing and being a herald of that kingdom, being a source of unity as much as possible, especially within uh, one's parish and nurturing people in the faith and recognizing that there is in the political realm a prudential nature to these questions that can and how we should work them out, how we work out the gospel and the gospel principles in certain political questions is fundamentally prudential and rightly the province of the laity and not the clergy precisely because we want clergy to be a source of unity and bring people together uh, around the gospel. So have a skeptical eye toward priests who cultivate a cult of celebrity uh, around themselves. Uh, there's a certain narcissism, I think, speaking very plainly about that, but also who make a cause, a social or moral cause, their center of their priesthood. And we can think of all kinds on right and left either way, but there's something misplaced about that, and I'm speaking only for myself in that regard. I'm reminded of a very fine scene and an overlooked scene, I think, in the movie The Mission, about the Jesuit missions in Paraguay and Argentina, when there's that great dialogue between Jeremy Irons and Robert De Niro. And uh, Jeremy Irons, of course, is the great missionary priest, Father Gabriel. And then there's the Robert De Niro character who used to be a slave trader and becomes a Jesuit. But they're having a dialogue about how to help the Guarani people, the native indigenous people. And, and De Niro wants to take up arms against the Portuguese and the Spanish uh, for the injustices that they're perpetrating. And uh, Jeremy Irons rightly says that the people need what they need is not someone taking another person taking up arms, but what they need is a priest. And so then you see De Niro go off and fight uh, in the skirmishes. And then you see Jeremy Irons with his people at the end, uh, with the monstrance processing uh, with the Eucharist. And this is a beautiful scene. And I think that hits right on the head is, yes, there are injustices and there is an, an interest in fighting and pushing back in the world, but how can priests be the most helpful to their people, being close to them and bringing them Jesus? And that's the, ultimately the thing that saves, not one political cause or another. So I think it's a helpful scene to keep in mind um, as we consider the voice of clergy in these uh, conversations. And ultimately, of course, clergy should be obedient to their bishops and speak about these matters in a way that's um, consistent with their bishops' uh, hopes and, and pastoral concern and solicitude for the faithful. Wonderful. Thanks, Jason. That really helps bring a good way to think about that. And before we wrap up this week's episode, what do you have in the bricklayer segment, ways that people can really start to live out their faith in the public arena? Well, summer parish festival season's in full swing and fall season will be upon us soon. Invite your legislators to join you at your parish for your summer or fall festival. They like to come kibitz with people, meet people, and uh, get to know them. And it's a great way for them to earn your trust and earn your vote. You can start to invite your legislators more locally, invite members of your city council, your county board, your school board. And school boards are hot places right now. A lot of people showing up at those school board meetings, but also your state legislators as well. Help those legislators and public officials get to know the people they represent and the issues that matter to you as Catholics. 
Remember, we as Catholics want to be a resource to our public officials and share with them what we think serves human dignity and the common good. Your legislators and elected officials rely on you as a resource, and if unless we are speaking with them about what serves human dignity and the common good, someone else will, and someone else will get their ear. Most public officials, remember, uh, really are driven by a couple key issues, and on the other things, they want to hear from their constituents and stakeholders. So it's really important that we're sharing our perspectives and viewpoints with our public officials, especially as there are so many controversial questions being litigated and considered at all levels of our society today. Like I just said, school boards are really places where there's a lot of tension and participation right now precisely because of what's been going on in public schools during the pandemic, but also with regard to certain uh, perspectives and viewpoints that are being pushed in those places. Remember to sign up also for your legislators' newsletters. Those are online. Those are great ways to stay up and informed about what's going on in City Hall, at the county board, but also at the Capitol as well. It's an easy way to start getting to know your public officials and finding an easy way to communicate with them. At the state level, of course, you can always figure out who represents me by going to our website, mncatholic.org. That's all the time we have for today on The Bridge Builder. For everyone listening on your podcast app, make sure to follow or subscribe so that you always know when a new episode comes out. Then leave us a five-star rating and click share so that more Catholics can begin to build the bridge between faith and public life. Let us know what you thought of today's episode. Share your ideas for the Bricklayer segment or send us your questions for the mailbag. You can leave us a comment on the podcast episode or connect with us on social media. You can also email us at show at mncatholic.org. Again, show at mncatholic.org. You can also catch up on any past episodes through our website, mncatholic.org slash podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in today to The Bridge Builder. We'll be back again next week with another great guest. More of your comments and questions and a new way for you to build bridges between faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, and for Kit Sapiniak of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, thanks for listening, and have a very blessed day.